0: namo bhishnu krishna prasthaya bhutale swami sri bhakti vedanta prabhu parate namah guruvakam shirasidvitta shaktya desha swarupine hare krishna ti mantrena paschatya prachakra pravaryaya Divya Karunya Murtaye Sri Bhagavata Madhurya Gita Jnana Pradayene Gaura Shri Rupa Siddhanta Saraswati Nisevine Radha Krishna Padam Boja Vringaya Guruve Venamah Devam Divyatanum Suchanda Padanam Balaka Chailanchitam Sandranandapuram sadeka varanam vairagya vidyambudhim Shri subhakti subhaktilasitam sarasadhanam varam bandetam subhadam adeka sharanam nyasishwaram sridharam Vandeshi Krishna jetanya nityananda sabodito Gododai Pushpa Banto Chitrao Sangotamonudo He Krishna Karuna Sindo Dinabandhu Jagarpate Gopisha Gopika Kanta Radha Devi Hanamami Hari
1: so we're continuing our discussion of the Chattushloki of Srimad Bhagavatam, which are the four verses that are the seed from which the rest of the Bhagavatam sprouts, blossoms, blooms, and bears the fruit the love of God and in the last meeting we discussed how Brahma to whom the verses were spoken by Krishna had undergone penance the directive for which he got from his self-searching introspection, self-searching and a sense within him that in order that he might understand himself in context that he needed to go outside of himself, so to speak or deeply within himself, as it might also be thought to uh, make connection with his source so if you want to know who you are it's one thing you can do is ask your father and mother and you can Get pretty far with that, uh, materially speaking. So, this is a a natural tendency and a, a natural means, a means that comes to us naturally, I should say, in pursuit of our seeking to seek about ourselves, to seek help. In our practical, even everyday experience, we can, if we observe, we can understand that often others know us better than we know ourselves <laughs> they tell us things about ourselves that we don't want to know <laughs> often, parts that we want to blank out so with the help of our friends as they say we may know more about ourselves and of course Brahma didn't have any friends he was alone he was, he was considered the first born so he uh, nonetheless reached out and considering himself to be unknowing about all these things, and desiring to know and understand, he reached out to the greater universe, if you will, from his finite position, he reached out to the infinite. Finite is, of course, part of the infinite, and infinite is also part of the finite. Infinite is such that To be so, everything must be contained within it. So, Brahma is within the infinite, nonetheless, and one with it in that sense, but nonetheless distinguished from it by being a finite part of it. And, as it's been said before, Pujapacita Maharaj offered the logic that if the finite wants to know the infinite, how is it possible? Knowing me, you know, to bring within your, your grasp. Understanding means that you've got it. <laughs> Something like that, a kind of an intellectual grip on things. Or beyond intellectual grip, actually knowing involves a kind of an interpenetration of the knower and that which is to be known. And how can we become interpenetrated with the object of, of knowledge as a knower, as a seeker, as someone who wants to know it, well, the best way is by love, that we can interpenetrate with the object by, by loving. It said also, as I've cited before, if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. And we have practical experience like that. So, anyway, in logic, Pujapada Sridhama, he said, he answered the question for us while giving us the question, how can the finite know the infinite which sounds like mathematically impossible, for the infinite to contain and to know, to grasp, to arrest, if you will, in the fist of one's mind, the infinite, the first reaction would be, well, it's not possible. But he offered the infinite, you know, logic from the perspective of the infinite, which reveals how small and paltry is the finite logic that can come from the finite. So this is an extra kind of trans-logical answer that comes from the perspective of the infinite, that what is that? That if the infinite chooses, out of its infinite capacity, to reveal itself to the finite, then which w- what would otherwise, from the finite perspective, be impossible? becomes possible, because for the infinite there is nothing that's impossible by its very definition. So, Again, then we come to the idea of revelation, that comprehensive knowing comes by revelation. If the infinite wants the finite to know, the finite can know. Otherwise, not. So, as I mentioned last night, there's a sense that in human consciousness that arises, that's prominent in all cultures of the world, from the aboriginal uh, peoples to the most sophisticated people. Everyone, like I told you about your daughters, they haven't had their, uh, their existential crisis yet. And they will. And then they'll become more interested in these things. And they had their first one anyway. And that's what happened. So when we want to know about ourselves, we want to understand ourselves, then we're also met very strongly with our limitations and the faulty nature of our tools, given the task. To know ourself, that means in relation to the infinite, everything, being, nature, reality, and so forth. To know ourself in that context means to know the whole thing, to have perfect knowing, to solve our existential crisis. Who are we? What are we? And of course, then why are we? It must have a purpose also. These are the questions that really come to bear in human consciousness that don't appear in the less complex forms of life. Therefore, human life is meant primarily for dealing with the questions that arise in human consciousness. And these are the real questions, the most significant questions. There are lesser questions that appear in all other forms of life, like how to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, how to defend oneself. These are all big issues. They are issues for us as well, but I like to think that they are issues for us only as much as, or to the extent that we have not focused our attention on the bigger issue. By answering that question, these lesser how-to, the why question, the how-to questions, will fall into place. Without answering those questions, we become out of balance then, in pursuit of eating, sleeping, mating, and defending become more confused than the less complex forms of life with regard to these uh, simple necessities. The animal society is not having a problem about how to mate or what to eat or how to sleep or how to defend themselves. We're so confused that in the name of defending ourselves we could blow ourselves up at any moment and the other issues of eating, sleeping and mating are also pretty Difficult for us, it seems, to, to sort out. And this is the reason why. Because the main question that arises in human society that's unique to human consciousness is not sufficiently addressed. But how difficult of a question is it then? That's why people may try and give up. But we, if we look carefully, we see it's not that difficult a question. The question's big, but how to get the answer is not difficult. There's an innate sense within us, that to answer this question, the best way is to get help. As I say, when we're met with the magnitude of the question, we also meet with our limitations in terms of our instruments for knowing our senses, our minds, our intellect. And we can stretch our intellect and the best of them better than us. More intelligent people have done so by intellect alone, without coming to a conclusion that is self-satisfying. Not that we shouldn't use our intellect, of course we could, but I think that the, the fullest measure of intellect is to realize, to understand the limitations of intellect for knowing. After all, intellect is a tool, then, for knowing our but the tool, then, is inferior to the self, do you understand? So how can the tool that is inferior reveal that which is superior to itself? So we have to have a transrational, not an irrational way of knowing, but a transrational, a super intellect. This is Tene Brahmarda This is the idea of divine inspiration or revelation. So the simple kind of answer to this of the question is you have to kind of cry out, you have to fold your hands, you have to like, with a prayerful kind of attitude. And, and children will do this. And We complicate things as things go on. As the intellect comes to be developed and so forth, we find rationale, reason and so forth, not to answer the questions even. And then we reason makes a, a pact, a wedding, with the the senses, for example, and and serves only to facilitate their appetite. We reason only how to better gratify our senses and indulge ourselves, which is, of course, then the cost of really knowing ourselves. It's certainly not an act of love. Indulgence means, in this context, taking, and love is about giving. So if we use our intelligence just to figure out how better to take, there's no giving, there's no growing then, and there's no real knowing of what we are, who we are. This is not the way. <laughs> this is the opposite, going in the opposite direction. So to use reason, which is, which is one of the things that is commonly said that distinguishes us from the other less complex forms of life, is tricky. We can use it to become a more, the most dangerous animal in the jungle, They've called it the concrete jungle in the the past, and it's a dangerous place. You know, we we went, (laughs) we've established, we're in the process of establishing a monastery and retreat center in Costa Rica, as you know. And uh, when we first announced the news of going there and so forth, there were a number of reactions about how many, there's poisonous snakes down there and, you know, it's, it's a dangerous place. My God, it's like Costa Rica. It's like, you know, where is it anyway? <laughs> is it part of the civilized world? I've heard of it. You know, these kind of reactions. And, you know, there are fewer people bitten by poisonous snakes in Costa Rica than are murdered in San Francisco you know, every night, you know, practically. <laughs> so there are more dangerous places than the jungle which constitute places wherein intellect is abused because the lower species of life or the less complex species of life don't have the, the same measure of, of intellect to meet their appetite for indulgence. We have an, an appetite for indulgence that's reasonable. Everyone needs to take something in order to live. And if we take what we need in order to live a higher life, then that kind of taking does not implicate us in exploitation. So there's a license for taking, you understand, within reason. And the license in human society is we should take as much as we need in order to pursue a higher life, a life without exploitation. That's the proper use of reasoning. jignasu mm. jignasu Kamasya, Nindriya, priti. Kamasya. One should never, Indriya priti means love of the senses, means love for just an epicurean life of indulgence. Kamasya, Nindriya priti. Human life should not be lived for this. Laboji, Veta, Yabata, Jivasya, Tatva, Jignasu. It should be lived only for the because it gives us the chance to inquire about this higher who am I, what am I, why am I, what is the nature of truth? It should be lived for this. And in the context of living, of inquiring for that, then there are things we have to do to maintain ourselves, And by such indulgence for our maintenance in the context of this pursuit, we're not implicated then in exploitation. So our appetite for indulgence, the less complex piece of life, also have appetite for indulgence, but they don't have the intelligence to distort their appetite to the extent that that we do. I mean, our cows are a little smart, and they will overeat, you know, some <laughs> sweets if if they can find their way intelligently into the barn, which they have at times. But we've got enough intelligence to be able to lock the doors and hopefully <laughs> and protect them, take care of them in that regard. But we have more difficulty taking care of ourselves. Immediate urge for indulgence and so forth is drawn within us and we can fall prey to this condition where senses get the upper hand over intellect and intellect becomes a slave of the senses and we reason and powerfully how to indulge how to take how to take over other nations how to look like you're not taking them over but take them over <laughs> anyway <laughs> Uh, uh, the corporate takeover and, and so forth. The blue-collar is more insidious than the, than the white-collar crime, or the white-collar crime, as they call it, through uh, the stock, stock market. market and so forth. And exploit all the, all the stockholders and this kind of thing. So this makes for a very dangerous beast in the name of human. But Bhagavatam calls it Pashu a two-legged animal only. So intellect is a demarcation, in a sense, between the less complex species of life and the human species of life. And how we use it will determine whether we go on from there or in the dress of a human become the most dangerous beast and descend thereby. So with the facility, for example, of intelligence, which affords us some freedom, like you can see in the universities. Here in the United States they have it's probably a, a Greek saying or something like that, uh, knowledge will set you free. So the ideas you, go to, you learn from the university, and the high, you know your parents want you to get education and so forth, understandably, because if you get an education, you have a better chance of making a living. You may be able to work less and make more if you use your intelligence wisely. So knowledge and intellect, which we have to apply in order to gain knowledge, is meant to facilitate our freedom, our liberation. It is a freedom. It translates out into a freedom, the the fact that we have it in human society. But with freedom also comes uh, responsibility. With those freedoms comes responsibility. And we have the responsibility to use our intellect in a way that we may... Yeah, so that we don't become the biggest beast, the most dangerous species on life, but we, be, we actually improve the uh, living conditions for, facilitate that the improvement, the betterment as far as possible, the conditions for, for all species of life. And it starts at home, ourselves. So it's charity begins at home. If you want to change the world, Gandhi said, you have to be the change that you want to make. If you see there's a need for a change, you don't just talk about it when it's convenient on campus or something like that and get up in a roar when something comes on the TV, you know, Tibet, yes, you know. Uh, but you have to do something, really. You have to change yourself. And of course, that's not easy, but then uh, we have intelligence, so we should, <laughs> it's a good tool. We should, we should use it and we should use it this far as to know its limitations. So again, the idea of appealing prayerfully beyond ourselves beyond our limits of sensual perception and thereby knowing or reason that transrational exercise is not an irrational exercise it requires the full measure of application of our intellect it really does because intellect is so has such a great power to uh, to deceive us that by collecting for example with our intellect information we may think we've gone, we really can deceive ourselves, but I think we've gone somewhere where we really haven't. Theoretical knowing is one thing, actually knowing is another. One should lead to the other, but one's not careful, it's not always the case. And then you really complicate yourself, your life, your your pursuit of knowing. Knowing, and ultimately, of course, knowing means Loving, so comprehensive knowing comes from loving. So love is ultimate knowledge, as I said. If you love someone, they'll reveal all their secrets. So Brahma wanted to know. And so he was introspective and prayerful. And he got some reciprocation. And he took it as a directive. And he applied himself accordingly. The directive was taupā to do austerity. Austerity means it means in this context a kind of religious sacrifice, self sacrifice. Sacrifice is at the heart of love. It's love is about giving, as I've many times said. So he did bhakti, he engaged in devotion. He received a mantra, a sound uh, formula that in which was contained the answer, really, to his question. Of self-searching, that the answer will come in sound is not unreasonable. Indeed, nowadays in science they also speculate that the world is sounds only, vibrations, like in your uh, string theory, and there are different versions of that and so forth. So, anyway, he heard a vibration, sound. He tuned into. He got good good vibes. And <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and he vibrated the sound. and, And so we come to this point then where the personification, if you will, of the mantra appeared before him. And the sound, the person that the sound represented appeared before him. This is understandable. We have names and when we call call the name of someone there's a likelihood that they may appear before us even if they don't appear physically before us when we hear or speak the name of someone whom we love we get a sense of their, their presence you know if you're sitting with people and friends and you mention the name of someone mentions the name of someone you love just hearing the name makes your heart jump and uh, you're flooded then with remembrances of the person, how they look, what they're like, and so forth. So in a name, what's in a name, they say. Everything. So much. Therefore they say, Did you get his name? Did you get his name? Who called? I don't know. Did you get his name? Everything is lost. (laughs) If you got her name, then okay. You can get her. Something like that. Nowadays, the identification is some type of number, and you don't want to give that out. I mean, the last four digits, they always ask you at the banks here in the United States, probably in Canada, too, of your social, what's it called there? Insurance number. Yeah, social security number here. So, social insurance. You're insured by this number of something, and you're secured by this number in some way. And if you give it out, your security could be breached, Right? You get into your bank account, they know everything about you, they know your they know your wealth, your worth, they take it, they take your worth, and what are you worth then? <laughs> so much in a name, much in a sound, this concept is is something that we're foreign to. When we read a book like the Bhagavatam, an old book from thousands of years ago in in an archaic in, in the sense that it's not being used today, language, and so but we wonder what relevance does this kind of thing have to us in the world today. But we can see it's talking about universal uh, principles. And it's, it's designed to help us in this kind of pursuit. It is a kind of a, a, an expression of the infinite, expressing itself to the finite, to help the finite answer this, these types of it's a body of revelation and a significant body of revelation in human society. It's not the only body of revelation, but if we study it carefully, we may, people have reasoned that whatever is found in other bodies of revelation is found in here too, and something more as well. And that's for each individual to find out for themselves. But while this may sound like a sectarian statement, and of course we are a particular sect and we do have a bias, that's why we're here. (laughs) It's not always a bad thing. Everyone has a persuasion and a bias and they have every right to pursue that and feel good about what they do. They should, otherwise they should be doing something else. But nonetheless, there's a pretty good... We ask, come and bring the yardstick of objectivity to this. What has been revealed... In that which is considered in human society, revelation about the nature of ultimate reality, and there's a lot here. So what happened anyway? I'll, we'll have to go into that. That's our topic. But um, as I say, the, the personification, if you will, of the sound, that which really corresponds with the sound, tapa, and as it's described. In uh, Brahma Sanhita, he got, the, he received the Gopal Mantra. It means the Gopal Mantra also means what? Swaha, this is what it's about. You understand? Swaha, this is, it concludes with this. I give myself. Giving. This is tapa. This is an austerity. It's an austerity to give for one who's prone to take, which is our present condition of our heart. It's our present condition because we've identified as an entity, as a unit of consciousness, knowing and perception and experience. We've identified ourselves with matter, which is only something that is experienced. Matter in and of itself doesn't have the capacity to experience itself. Consciousness does. Consciousness experiences matter. Consciousness is the experiencer. Matter is experienced of course we feel there's an ontological difference between matter and consciousness, not a difference that makes for an ununified whole or reality, but a qualified kind of nuanced difference of the non dual ultimate reality. It said, sarva kala vidam brahma. Everything is Brahman. So, you don't throw away everything in understanding that kind of statement. There are other things, if you will, and they're all Brahman. This is my body. It's also my hand. Right? It's my body. I can say, this is my body. And I can also distinguish it from the rest of my body by calling it my hand. So, we... Units of consciousness and matter, both, are God. But they're aspects, shaktis, potencies of God, of the absolute, by which that ultimate reality, which is the infinite, which there's nothing beyond, there's nothing other than, by which it does what it does. It's potencies. It's, it's not an empty, th- ultimate reality is not an empty thing. It's, it's alive, has potency and by that it does what, what it does. So anyway, we are one, a particle, so to speak, of one of those potencies and then there's matter, it's another one. And the difference between us and matter is that matter is experienced, we're the experiencer. Pretty big difference. But when we as a unit of consciousness have identified with matter as ourselves, like I'm Finnish, or I'm American, or I'm a New Zealander, or I'm a I'm Polish, Canadian, American as it may be, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm white, and so on and so forth. All this is identification with the particular configuration of matter that's come to surround us. We've identified with that, and that particular configuration of matter is one that is needy in order for it to continue. It has needs. So when we've identified with matter, we have needs. They're false needs because we are not matter. body's going to die, so I think I better get busy. I have to work. I have to get some security, and uh, otherwise I might not be. There's a struggle for existence. The struggle is I'm trying to maintain something that won't endure there's a scope for maintaining it. If you know that it won't endure, (laughs) endure it for the purpose of transcending the identification with it that is the problem that we call the struggle for existence. So, the point is that in this condition, then, there's a kind of uh, a neediness. And, and, uh, so, and we're driven by that then to be Takers, rather than givers. So, at any rate, here, Bhagwan Sri Krishna appears before Brahma in answer to that tapa. Tapa, as I'm saying, is difficult for us because we're prone to act in another way. Tapa means swaha; it's to give, to give of oneself. It means yeah, love, like giving, and this is what Brahma did. But it's difficult for us to do because we're so prone to taking because we've identified with matter which has needs. And so we're busy with this. So to overcome that identification and the way to do it is to, it really is to start to give. And perfect giving then will bring perfect knowledge. So you have to give somewhere. We have an idea here. The Bhagavatam here is giving an idea where you should propose your giving tendency that you may... Actually give comprehensively. And giving is the getting. So I don't want to say where you will repose your giving tendency so that you can get the most. I want to say where you can repose your giving tendency so that you can give the most. Because that is the getting, the giving. So Bhagavatam what happened is that this Brahma was giving and the center, the taker. The appropriate taker, which is the center that everything on the circumference orbits around, and is dependent upon, appeared before him, and that center we call Krishna. And of course, Krishna is described poetically in different ways. You study that and you say, "Well, you know, the center must be the best of everything." So, if we want to use our human kind of experience, youth is the is the best time. And the best aspect of life, you know, all things aside, I mean, <laughs> is when we fall in love and we feel most complete. He's a lover and he's adolescent, he's depicted in experienced reality, this the reality that corresponds with complete giving, that center. Brahma found that. He gave completely based on some directive from that center. And upon doing so, the center appeared before him. It's a very esoteric, actually, idea. But appearing, then, he spoke these four verses that are the seed, then, of this whole sacred text. And before he spoke the four, he gave a couple of introductory verses uh, that are usually included in the discussion of the four. The story goes that Brahma had this epiphany. And if you study that, as it's described there, as a side point here, you may question whether it was Krishna who appeared before him or a particular manifestation of Krishna, like not I am. But by cross-reference to other texts and by careful study of the language of the Bhagavad itself, and a cross-reference within the text of the Bhagwat, we can reach the conclusion that Jiva Goswami reached that it was Krishna himself who came before Brahma. We find, for example, in Brahma Samhita, it's very clear. After Brahma gets, the story is told there as well. After Brahma gets the, the revelation, then he describes in so many verses what he saw. Chintamani prakrasadmasu kalpa briksalakshabi shu sudabi ravi lakshmi sahasra sata sambramase vyamanam govindam adipurusham tamaham bhajami hmm. vajeshweta dvipam tamaham golokam itiyam tamaham golokam itiyam. He said, I saw that golok. There's very few people can. See that? It's the center, the heart of reality. The love life of the Absolute was revealed to me. So nice uh, poetry he's given there. And in the context of describing that, what he saw, what he experienced, that we study his prayers there, he situates everything else within that. What is the, what is the material world? What is in between? What is this Golok and uh, Ganesh and other uh, divinities and, and so forth? And so it's a very inclusive kind of idea, as it should be, because he's in the center now. So there in Brahma Samhita we find... and. In course, in Gopal Tapani, we find the term Gopabesh. So he appeared in a particular way, dressed dress as a cowherd, which is a whole, uh, how this can be, why this is the center. It says something to us about the virtue of simplicity, among many other things. But here in Bhagavad as well, throughout Bhagavad, in the third canto, Krishna speaks to Udub and says, and tells him, I spoke this Bhagavad knowledge to Brahma. Mm-hmm. Later on in the 11th canto, Krishna says the same thing to Uddhava. I spoke this to Brahma. In the 12th canto, in the last chapter, we find Sutta Goswami explains it in the 10th verse, in the 19th verse, in the 20th verse, and in the first verse of Bhagavatam. Denei Brahma, Hrdayadikobiei. We have, as we've already discussed this, these are all cross-references. And then in the language itself, here in this section of the Bhagavatam that just precedes these uh, these four verses that we're just uh, exploring, the significance of the seed verses of the text, then there's, uh, it's apparent that he saw in the context of seeing Krishna, the darshan of Krishna, darshayam asaparam nayatparam, he saw. he saw, it was revealed to him. Darshan means that God chooses to see us. and In the context of seeing us, well, we see God. So, not that we will go and see. Again, if God wants to reveal, if the infinite wants to reveal itself, then we can know, otherwise not, on God's terms, on the terms of the infinite, such knowing as possible. So anyway, Dajayanasa Nayat Param Jiva Goswami has analyzed the words here and he's uh, explained how the darshan of the abode, the, the, uh, of the center that he received was Parambaykuntha. Parambaikuntha is another name for, for Goloka. Baykuntha means it's a name that has been given in Sanskrit for, for that world, that realm, that beyond time and space, a realm, if you will, beyond time and space that is by kuntha, free from all fear, free from all anxiety. Anxiety comes from attachment. There's no attachment. And in the heart of that land, the param by where freedom from anxiety, freedom from anxiety there's two sides to it, in one sense: freedom from anxiety is that the anxiety is not there anymore we 're attached to things that don 't endure, and this is producing some anxiety we can 't keep them the more we like them, the more problematic it is and we know that, but we 're kind of ignoring it, and well you know we can trade it in later on and get another one and. Continue this whole thing, kind of with as little pain as possible, and but it's it's a pervasive, material existence, is a pervasive kind of anxiety that arises from this whole thing, attachment to that which doesn't endure, on the part of something that does endure, ourselves. Problem. So to be free from that is to be free from anxiety, but the parambikunta idea is that it takes it further into more and greater degrees of positive content, if you will. So, for example, what I mean to say is space is accommodating, right? You need your space. I need my space. So you want your own room, your own house, your own whatever kingdom, but you want your space. And there's some there's some freedom from anxiety in that. So when we go from the smallness of the material world and its pettiness that's causing this anxiety, this attachment, to freedom from attachment, we come to an expansive, what appears to be a very expansive idea. Liberation, freedom, no attachment, space. It's bigger than the physical. It's bigger than the mental. It's... Bigger than the, than the intellectual, and how much bigger? Unlimitedly bigger. These are all planes, intellectual plane, mental plane of experience, sensual plane that are limited. They don't give us the kind of room we need, so to speak. So when we go beyond the mental plane, we come to a very spacious and accommodating idea beyond the dualities that are created in the mind of good and bad and happy and sad, hot and cold, that we have to move around and so forth. But then when we come from, this is like Brahman, right, the undifferentiated, indeterminate, absolute. It looks like all the different religious traditions are kind of like a way of talking about that, giving form to that and so forth and then if you apply yourself you go beyond all that form and you arrive there at this peaceful place and then when you start to talk as we do as the Bhagavad does about forms that are are beyond time and space and realms beyond time and space they so it's kind of oh well, this is a little kind of confusing because form seems to imply limitations qualities and the more determinate a thing is the more limited it is indeterminate Space, that can accommodate everything. All the religious traditions can be accommodated in that. But when we speak about qualities of the ultimate reality and form, like the form of Krishna, the form of Narayan, for example, and these realms that I'm talking about, that Brahma had experience of access to beyond time and space, while it starts to sound smaller to our mind, less accommodating and sectarian, If we study the metaphysic that this concept is based upon, we will see that it's a metaphysic of love. And when we study the nature of these realms, we find that they're differentiated by degrees of love and intimacy with reality. And thus they are more accommodating. You follow me? Because space is accommodating. That's one thing, sure. But you can live in the smallest place you could imagine if you're with the one you love. (laughs) <laughs> you could own the whole world just to yourself but you could live in a closet with someone you were in love with and the whole rest of the world could could burn down so the bigness is accommodation we're looking for accommodation we all are so this is love is accommodating so there's a, these you have to understand the underlying metaphysical basis of by Kuntha, and then the progression to Ayodhya and Goloka, these, these realms, as, as we're speaking about them. And the, the metaphysic that makes for them, that explains them, is one of love. This is a cinta beda, beda This all comes out, of course, in these four um, seed verses. So it may appear small. It takes an appearance of smallness. But the nature of the atmosphere, if we study it, it's big, accommodating. When we go to Kunta, ah, the Golok, the Krishna person, Radha and Krishna, it's a duad. We're really not monotheistic in the true sense of the term, because our ultimate reality is a duad, Radha and Krishna. You know, we could talk about God as he or her, it's both and and more. <laughs> so when you enter there it becomes smaller than Baikunta, right? It's described like a village only, not like, like Kuntapuri, big cities and gates and all, so forth. And that's a small place, and the people are smaller, and their activities are smaller. What they, Their concerns are smaller in one sense, but look carefully, they're really concerned with what really matters, with love. So it's deceiving then. If you don't understand the metaphysic, when you hear about these realities, you'll think he's limiting it now. It's becoming, you know, smaller and smaller. I want an expansive idea of the absolute that's all accommodating, that's for everybody. Everybody can take part in it. Not just a sectarian idea. That's why it's so important to understand the underlying metaphysic, because if you if we have a metaphysic that affords an ultimate reality That's a loving reciprocation that is a unity because love is about becoming one but at the same time a diversity because you can't have love without both of these things at the same time which are logically uh, incompatible. To be one and to be different, we can talk about it to some extent but love transcends reason. So we we say that only even in common English uh, parlance. You probably have a Finnish term for it too or a Polish one. Even in the material realm, what we call love, which is a semblance of real love, retires reasoning. So, uh, this is what Brahma saw. And if we study Bhagavatam, as I say, with these cross references and so forth, and look carefully at the text. Akila Sattvatam Pati, he says here, describing what he saw. Jiva Goswami says from the Adu dynasty. Sattvatam Pati. There's the details, of course. Anyway, he saw Krishna. In the context of seeing Krishna, naturally, he saw full of Golok. So he saw Krishna with forearms, as Dwarkesh, with Nanda, Sunanda mentioned here, his associates. These are also associates of Krishna in Braj. These are references that Jiva Goswami has her points here in the description that he underscores to make his point that this section must conform with what the beginning of the book says and the end of the book says. And other books that talk about the same incidents. Krishna revealed everything to Brahma, not Narayan, but he saw Narayan also, because Narayan is in the concept of Narayan, which means reverential love for God. Narayan is the deed that corresponds with reverential love, is also within love and intimacy. It's contained within that, and, and more. So the idea is, he saw comprehensively. He had a comprehensive epiphany of uh, experience, darshan, of the uh, the center, the heart of divinity. And why? Because Krishna was pleased with him. He wanted to show him his secrets. <laughs> he wanted to, because he loved him, tapa, saha. And so now he appears before him. And he's going to speak a few verses, as they say, two introductory verses and then the four seed verses, which are going to elaborate then on the significance of the sound that he heard originally, the mantra that he got. So the person that corresponds with, or the object of love that corresponds with the love exercise that the invoking of the mantra constituted the person that corresponds with appears before him and now begins to speak about himself. So from diksha, which is the giving of the mantra, we get siksha also to serve, to foster that. And what happens is when we get siksha, what is real siksha? Siksha means instruction, spiritual instruction, but what they really, the experience of it is they seem to articulate that which we kind of, we're feeling, but we can't quite, couldn't say it as well ourselves. Mm -hmm. So there's a bond that comes from that. It's not a foreign thing. It's like, yeah, I kind of was thinking along, he said it pretty good, she explained it better than I have been able, but I feel like that. So so there's a, a resonance. It's not a foreign external imposition, because why? The instructor is actually an external manifestation of that which resides in our heart. God resides in our heart. People say, God's in my heart, why should I get a a guru? It's a misunderstanding of the concept of guru. Guru is an external manifestation that represents the depth of our heart. Therefore when a real guru speaks, it touches our heart and we feel some, as much as we want to be in touch with our heart. I mean, not everybody does and therefore everybody doesn't need a guru. (laughs) But at some point, in the context of really self-searching in a sense of necessity, which is healthy, then this kind of chemistry, guru and sisha, guru and disciple, is in place. And then, I guess from chemistry we go to biology. (laughs) That's what they say. And so something is born there, new life, second birth. So anyway, we didn't get to the four verses, or even the two that preface it, but that was a good preface to the to the six. <laughs> of the, the two that preface the four. Of course, some of the points that I've brought up will be will be brought up and re-emphasized and further explained in the context of going through the verses. Are there any questions? We were talking about the different levels of perception this morning yeah. during the reading. And the term aparoksha was kind of like hazy for us.
0: So Can you say something about that?
1: Pratyaksha, Mm -hmm. paroksha, aparoksha, Mm -hmm. adhoksaja, aprakrita? Well, pratyaksha means direct knowing by the senses, Mm -hmm. and paroksha means knowing with the help of an extension of the senses, like maybe through instruments or through others senses. These are all external ways of knowing. Aparoksha is a kind of, of a reverse of that. So through introspection, vivek and inward pursuit and the practices that facilitate that there's a kind of knowing that comes about. There's a knowing of the by pratyaksha, by paroksha, we can know something, however imperfectly, about the external world but if we start to reflect on the external world which is kind of a reflection of the inner world then we can get some sense about it and some inspiration to introspection means starting to go within it's not a, just a reasoning exercise that amounts to paroxia but it's a kind of an inward turning with the reason like I was talking about, rather than an outward turning to facilitate indulgence and sense experience. And then there are refined means for that inward looking and introspection we call you know yoga, gyan, gyan yoga and so forth. And bhakti of course is not without introspection, in- inward going and so forth. So but it's it particularly speaks about Aparoksha, the kind of knowledge it can be arrived at by gyan, a kind of a, um, a rudimentary, it would be in our worldview, a rudimentary knowing of the nature of being. So, for example, self-realization. And when we go for, by sense perception and by the help of other people's senses, we may know something about the world of the senses, something about the world of the mind and so forth, but we may know nothing about ourselves. It's, it's quite possible. But when we start to look in... So that's outward looking. When we look inward, then we're looking for ourselves, uh, you know, the in, whole eye, introspection means intro to look within. So we look within, we come to self-realization. If we look from self-realization, we can go to God-realization. Self-realization means you may know yourself in terms of being categorically different from matter and all of the problems that arise from identifying with matter are no longer your problems. You're not going to die, etc. We know that we exist, but we don't know the extent to which we exist. Therefore, we fear. So self-realization means to to know the extent to which we exist and no fear. As they say, this is a different way of thinking about it it's a really comp- comprehensive way, so that kind of that's a kind of knowing that kind of negates, if you will, that which goes on in the name of knowing mm-hmm. it's not really knowing it's kind of ignorance relatively speaking it's knowing, but from the absolute perspective, knowing the world through the senses is really not knowing very much, is it mm- mm-hmm gets in the way of ultimate ultimate knowing. So self-realization. But beyond self-realization, then God-realization, myself, then in relation to the uh, the absolute. And there comes then the possibility of reciprocal dealings and love and so forth. So then, from there we go to the hoaxaja, which is an overtly transcendental realm of experience. And then we go to aprakrita, which is Not overtly transcendental, but it's super transcendental. It's it's like, uh, like I've said before, if the infinite is to meet on intimate terms with the finite, the infinite will have to take a finite appearance in order to make that intimacy possible. Otherwise, we'll be overwhelmed by the presence of the infinite. So this is the idea of Krishna. What Krishna looks like, well, you know, This is the center of everything. It's kind of like pretty finite and doesn't overtly appear transcendent. But if you look carefully at it, you say, oh, this is very, very transcendental, very, um, very esoteric. To make make that only a myth that we draw something from is to really draw very little from it, as much as that may be. Draw lessons from it, which we can. (laughs) It's very esoteric, the idea. Krishna, the center of everything, that's a prakriti you understand?
0: Yeah.
1: Hmm? Prakrita means like the mundane, so it's prakriti It kind of looks na- mundane, but it's, it's actually super transcendental. If you go far enough west, you know, you'll come out of the east, something like that. It looks ordinary, but it's not. It looks small but because as I said it's full of love it's really quite big and as big as the world of the senses looks it's pretty small and so and the world of the mind bigger but it's still pretty small in comparison, the world of intellect is bigger than the mind even but it's still small compared to the world of, of love, of full giving that's big, that's accommodating comforting that's the idea of Golok Shri धाम Dham जाए, श्रीमद् Srimad Bhagutan जाए, Bhakti Oh
0: Premanande